Well, hello everybody. Today I'd like to talk to you about one of my heroes from a very select group. This is one of Jesus's blood relatives, his half-brother James. They shared the same genetic mum, but they didn't share the same father. Now, before I go on, the Catholic Church teaches something called the perpetual virginity of Mary. And they say that she had no other natural children, but it's clear that she did. And the oldest of these after Jesus was James, whom we're talking about today. Mary went on to have numerous children, and this is really quite clear in the Bible. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 6. It says this, He, that's Jesus, departed from there and came into his home territory, and his disciples followed him. When it was a Sabbath, he started teaching in the synagogue, and most who heard him were astounded and said, Where did this man get these things? And why should this wisdom have been given to him and such powerful works he performs through his hands? This is the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon, is it not? And his sisters are here with us also, are they not? In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says this. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Peter and I stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles, only James, the brother of our Lord. In Acts chapter 1, it says this, with one purpose, all of these were persisting in prayer together with some of the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and Jesus' brothers. There are numerous other scriptures too. Indeed, the early church universally called James Jesus' brother, not his cousin, not his stepbrother, not his spiritual brother, but his real brother. So I'm very happy to accept that the James that we're discussing today was Jesus' brother and not the son of a former marriage of Joseph, as some have tried to suggest, so that the perpetual virginity of Mary can continue. Now, it might surprise you to hear that some people really do not like James or his letter. And the reason is that they don't like some of the passages. Let me give you an example. In his letter, James writes this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can faith save him? If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you faith by my works. He goes on to say, Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well... Martin Luther really did not like this, and he called for the removal of James's letter from the scripture. 
The reason was that it seemed to cut across his teaching of being saved through faith alone. Yet the letter from James talks about how important it is that we also demonstrate good works or good deeds, good acts, good behaviour. And that was just too much for Martin Luther. Now, James was a devout and learned Jew. He was committed to Judaism. He certainly knew his Bible well, as we can read in Acts 15. Some say that he never got over his Jewishness and that he compromised his own faith because of it. Yet that's not true. And it's the Holy Spirit, that divine editor of our scriptures, that determined the canon of our scriptures, the books that should be in it. I read a book just this week that accused James of not being a full Christian. It claimed that James was too Jewish and sought salvation through works or by being good. But that's not what James taught. James makes it clear that faith without works is dead. If your faith doesn't produce good acts, good behaviour, good works, then it has no power. His teaching agrees that we are saved by faith, but we are saved for works. The two can coexist. The two must coexist, according to James. He suggests that if your faith is not demonstrated in your works, your behaviour, then it's really not faith at all. Well, anyway, here we have Jesus' younger brother. James is a short version of the name Jacob or Yaakov. As well as James, there were three other younger brothers and at least two sisters. Another of his brothers was also a writer in our Bibles. That was Jude or Judas, the same name. Now, you can let your imagination run with this character. And I'd like to give you some advice. When you read your Bible, use your imagination. It brings the Bible to life. Imagine what it would have been like. Imagine how people would have responded. Imagine what you would have done in the various circumstances that you read about. You get far more from your Bible if you read it with imagination, even the imagination of a child. It's a book of profound truths and stories that are best imagined. Now you realise, of course, that I'm not saying that the Bible is an imaginary book. I'm saying bring it to life with your imagination. You'll get far more out of it. I can imagine Jesus talking to James over dinner. I can imagine their interactions. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder what James thought of Jesus. I wonder if they ever argued. For 30 years, they were together eating, working, talking, walking. James was probably in the same field of work as his brother and his father. We don't know for sure. Actually, we've got no choice but to use our imagination for James because the Bible tells us almost nothing about his youth and him growing up. In fact, we hear very little until one day a company of builders and fishermen go to a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. This is that place. They went here to where a wild prophet called John is calling on people to be baptised. And here Jesus submits himself to baptism and he's declared to be the Messiah. He next goes north to his hometown in Nazareth 
and he picks up the scroll in the synagogue to read from Isaiah. He found the place where it was uh, written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are bound and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And all bore witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. But all the time, James, his brother, did not believe in Jesus, nor did James believe down to the very end. Few, if any, of his family saw him as the Messiah. Indeed, they were troubled by him. Some of the things that Jesus did that offended the Pharisees and some of the things that he said that offended the observers of the law offended them too. Even his mother was unsure what to make of Jesus. It's as if the revelation of Jesus' mission was revealed gradually to her. She pondered many things in her heart but did not fully understand them. His siblings at times were quite hostile to him. At one time Jesus entered into a house in Galilee and there was a big crowd, so much so it says the disciples could barely move and couldn't get any food to eat. You can read about this in Mark chapter 3. His family, including Mary, his mother, heard about this hullabaloo and they left to go and it says they wanted to take control of him. They said he's gone mad, he's out of his mind. And when Jesus was told that his mother and his brothers were outside, he said, well, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? You are them. Whoever does the will of my father is my brother, is my mother. And his family were confused and unaware of who he really was. I wonder what went on in that household over the three years during Jesus' ministry. The family perplexities about Jesus, the family reasonings about him, the family divisions and disputes about him, their hopes at one time over him and their fears and their sinkings of hearts because of him at another time. Think of the last week of Jesus' life, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Mary's firstborn son. Whose imagination out there is sufficient to picture to itself what Joseph, Mary, James and the rest of the family uh, were up to all that week? Where did they make ready to eat the Passover meal? What were they doing at the time when he was in Gethsemane? Were they standing with the crowd in the streets when he was led about all night in his bonds? And where were they while he was being crucified? We know that Mary was right there. Were the others there? I'm not sure that James and Jesus got on all that well at this time. The next time we come across James is in these words of Paul, the apostle. He says this, And Jesus, the Messiah, was buried, and he rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the disciples or the apostles. Jesus took time to appear specifically and individually to his dear brother James. And the result seems to have been the same as it was with Paul, then Saul or Shaul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Here was Jesus who was dead and is now alive. 
It transformed James. I know Jews that have found Jesus and it's like they knew everything, but they did not have the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. I was on holiday once uh, with our family and a friend of ours was uh, with us and they were doing a jigsaw puzzle and as a bit of fun, I pinched a piece of the puzzle and I hid it. Later on, when they came to finish the puzzle, they were disappointed to find that there was a piece missing. And when I revealed my mischief, our friend laughed and then said to us or said to me, how did you know that that was going to be the last piece of the jigsaw? (laughs) Well, so it is with many Jews. As soon as they discover that Jesus is their longed for Messiah, everything fits into place. The last piece of the jigsaw puzzle, the whole picture comes to life. And that's what happened to James. The light came on. The sceptic became one of Jesus' most ardent and faithful followers, even unto death. One chap I know in Israel who was uh, living in Haifa, he was adopted, and he heard that his real mother was perhaps living in Tiberias. So he went to Tiberias in search of her. And he found her. She, it turns out, was a believer in Jesus and she introduced this man to his heavenly father. And so he says to me, he said, I found my earthly mum and my spiritual dad. But he also discovered that he had a brother called Jesus, Yeshua. And he tells the story with tears in his eyes. And he's now invited all over the world to lead worship to his Heavenly Father and his beloved brother. But the picture fell into place for him. It all made sense when he discovered Jesus was alive. And that's what dear James discovered on that day. I wonder whether James looked back at the earlier years with some regret or sadness. We don't know. We do know this, that he never, ever doubted his brother again. So what happened to James in the period after Jesus' death? Well, after a few years of Paul starting to preach to the Gentiles, a dispute or a question arose about a few things, in particular whether Gentiles should be circumcised. So Paul went to Jerusalem to discuss this with the leaders there. And here he met the main man in the church in Jerusalem by the name of James. Now, by this time, James had a nickname. He was called James the Just or James the Bulwark. He was a just and righteous man who had become the strongest of pillars in the church in Jerusalem. He'd become a foundational leader of the church in Jerusalem. And when Paul was there, they called a council to discuss the subject under discussion and the council members all spoke. And James, the chairman, was the last to speak. And with his verdict, he came down in favour of Paul, giving freedom to the Gentile church. Now, a man called Hegesippus, who lived just after James, wrote about him and he said, After the apostles, James, the brother of the Lord, surnamed the just, was made head of the church at Jerusalem. And he describes James' ascetic or unindulgent and disciplined lifestyle. He writes, James, the Lord's brother, 
succeeds to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He has been universally called the just from the days of the Lord down to the present time. James would say, I would go into the temple and he used to be found there on his knees begging forgiveness for the people. He was on his knees so much that the skin of his knees became horny and toughened by constantly bending the knee in adoration to God and begging for the forgiveness of the people. And he led the church in Jerusalem for 30 years until the seventh year of the emperor Nero. A man called Clement of Alexandria writes about James' death. He says this, following the death of the Roman governor of the region, a man called Festus. There was a two-month gap before the next governor was appointed. This was a man called Albinius. And during this period between the two governors, the Jewish rulers took this opportunity to attack the Christians. And they took the main leader of the church, that's James, and they brought him to this place. The pinnacle of the temple, that's what it's called. The high point. And they said to him, now blaspheme Jesus or we'll throw you down. This is the very pinnacle where the devil took Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 to be tempted. And James the just simply replied, I see the son of man. He's coming on the clouds of glory. And so they did what they said they would do and they threw him off at high point. Astonishingly, the fall didn't kill him. So they started to stone him. And as he lay there with his bones broken and the stones being thrown at him, he prayed out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Still praying for their forgiveness, echoing the words of his own brother. And the crowd watching out cried out, James the just is praying for us. What a faithful finish. Finally, somebody, probably out of mercy, uh, got a big wooden stick and clubbed him around the head and finished him off. I find it a very moving story and I struggle to compose myself when I talk about this story at the foot of that place in Jerusalem. Now, many Jews in Jerusalem disapproved of this murder of James, as James was seen as a righteous and just man. And even though he was a follower of Jesus, which wasn't generally approved, he was well liked. A man called Eusebius wrote and said this, that many of the Jews were of the opinion that this, that's James' death, was the cause of the siege of Jerusalem just a few years later. The historian Josephus, talking about the siege of Jerusalem that followed, says these things happened to the Jews to avenge James the Just, who was the brother of Jesus, that is called the Messiah. For the Jews slew James, although he was a most just man. When James' fellow believers came to pick up his body and give him a proper burial, they were astonished when they saw his knees. Do you remember early when we heard that his knees were tough and horny through constant prayer? And they called out, look, James has camel's knees. His knees were padded and tough like a camel's knees, where he had spent so much time on his knees. 
and this biblical hero who had little time for his brother in the first 30 years of his life couldn't stop speaking to him, praying to him on his knees for the second 30 years of his life. Can you begin to see why James is one of my heroes? Well, let's draw to a close. What can we learn from this? I've got four things, four short and simple things to suggest. Number one, read the Bible with your imagination. Bring it alive. Learn to love it and all that it can offer you. So we're told to love the Lord with all of our hearts, with all of our souls and with all of our minds. Use your mind, use your imagination, use your intellect when you read the Bible as well as your heart and soul. Number two, remember the words of our biblical hero when he reminds us that faith must result in behaviour or works or good deeds. We're not saved by our good deeds, but without them, where is our faith? We are saved for them. Let me quote from James once again. But some will say, you've got faith and I've got works. Well, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? Well, you do well. But even the demons believe and and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Let's remember to work out our salvation. Number three, have we got camel's knees? Well, I'm ashamed to say that I don't. And James is a major lesson to me in this regard. James spent much time on his knees. He would take time out to pray to his brother. His colleagues knew where he would be if they couldn't find him. He teaches us to be both faithful and fervent in prayer. What a lesson. And finally, fourthly, Like so many of our heroes in the Bible, James reminds us to stay faithful to the end. He may not have started well, but he sure did end well. Far too many people start good and finish bad, losing their faith along the way, becoming lazy in their faith, becoming complacent, taking their eye off the ball, becoming lukewarm, too comfortable. Let us not be found amongst that number, but be those who are commended as both good and faithful servants. You know, the words faith and faithful are identical in the Hebrew language. You cannot have one without the other. And this is a very important lesson from James. Let's not conform to the world's ways, but be transformed by the remarkable work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. God bless you all.